Thank you, Terry and Teresa. What a wonderful song. Great job on that. If you will take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll begin reading in verses 11 through 17 in just a moment. In the year 1569, a man named Dirk Willems uh, was sitting in a cold prison castle uh, in the Netherlands. You may ask, what was his great crime that he found himself sitting in prison? Well, he believed that baptism was reserved for those who had actually placed their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And he believed this truth so fervently, he began to tell others about it. And when the town council and all the officials told him to stop, he said, I can't stop talking about this. And so uh, in those days with the the church state, uh, I mean, the state church of so many places, um, Anabaptists like Dirk Willems found themselves in jail quite often. But the day came in uh, in early winter that uh, he had a way to escape. He had saved a bunch of rags and tied them into a rope, and he made his way down the side of that castle prison, and he began to escape. But the problem was that a guard noticed, and a guard began pursuing him. And so Dirk, again, has been on prison rations for quite a while, and so he has, he doesn't weigh very much. And so he gets across to the, the frozen pond, and he makes it across just fine. But then that guard, who hasn't missed a meal, he keeps going across that pond, and the ice begins to break. And before you know it, the guard is fighting for his life, and he's crying out, asking for help. Now, I, I can see the look on some of your faces. Some of you are thinking, look, God has smiled upon Dirk, and he can get away. He can keep going. But that's not how Dirk saw it at all. He uh, heard the cries of this man who would be his captor, and he turns around and he goes back, knowing that the moment he saves this guard, his life is now headed for execution once again. But that's what Dirk Willems does. He goes back and he saves this guard and, and rescues his life. And to the guard's defense, he wanted to let Dirk go. But the the mayor of that city showed up and said, no, your job is to capture fugitives and bring them to justice. And so ultimately, Dirk Willems died uh, being burned alive like so many Anabaptist martyrs were during that day. What would possess such a man to do something like that, to do good to someone who clearly is unjustly doing him wrong? Perhaps the better question for you and me today is why should we do good to those who want to do us wrong? Well, God's Word has something to say about that. And so we're going to turn, continue in our study of 1 Peter and begin in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. So if you found your place in God's Word, if you're able, whether in, in body or in spirit, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. 
And as you've heard me affirm the text every week for almost eight months now, would you join me as we affirm God's word? The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. God in heaven, we do thank you for your word, uh, your worth that abides for your word abides forever. And we thank you for that, Father. We pray now that you would help us to set aside all distractions. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to better understand your word and that you would work in our hearts and our minds this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We've come to a, a new section in our study through First Peter. We wrapped up the first section last week and we saw that uh, Peter had been explaining a great deal to us about our salvation in Christ. But we can tell that he's beginning a new section when you look at the first word of chapter 2, verse 11. He says, Beloved. And that's a, a form of introduction. You would think of that as almost being something you hear at the beginning of any letter. Beloved. But flip over for just a moment to chapter 4, verse 12. I want you to see that same word again. He also says, Beloved. And so he's letting us know here we're in a new section. A section that's going to last from chapter 2, verse 11, all the way over to chapter 4, verse 12. We're going to be in this section for a while. And these verses, verses 11 and 12, really form the thesis, the big idea that we're going to keep coming back to over and over and over as we study this section of the letter. But Peter begins by addressing them as beloved, those who are loved by God. This points us back to everything he's already told us so far in the letter. As he's explained who we are in Christ, that Christ has saved us, he's called us, and that now we are a chosen race. We're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for his own possession. We once were not a people, but now we are God's people. We had once not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. And so we are beloved by God. And now everything that Peter's already said, he builds off of that saying, Beloved, I urge you, I exhort you, I strongly press you to pay attention to what I have to say and to do these things. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and as exiles. Now, you might think those words are, are basically synonyms for one another, that they essentially mean the same thing. And they're very closely related. Uh, but the word for sojourner, and again, we've already seen it. It's one of the key words in our study in First Peter. Sojourner really carries the idea that you're living in somewhere that's not your permanent home. The world is not our permanent dwelling place. We live here only for a season, but we are sojourners. We are just passing through, looking for a city whose builder and maker is God in heaven. But we're also exiles. An exile is someone who is not with their people. We, even though we live here, we are not part of this world's people. We once were not a people, but now we are God's people. And so we are sojourners and we are exiles. And because of that, Peter urges us, to abstain from the passions of the flesh. We're to abstain, to avoid, to stay away from. We're not to have anything to do, not to give in to the passions of the flesh. Now, what are these passions, you might ask? Well, Peter's eventually going to tell us, but he actually doesn't say specifically until chapter 4, verse 2. And so we'll get more specific when Peter gets more specific, when we get to that part of the text. But I do think it's worth pointing out that one of the great uh, ever-present temptations, one of the great passions of our flesh as sojourners and exiles, is that we're often temp tempted to live like we're not sojourners, like we're not exiles. We're often tempted to live as if this world is our home, that this life is all there is to, uh, to achieve, to, to earn. Uh, as one false teacher popularly says, we can live our best life now. 
That's not the end. We are sojourners. We're just passing through. This is not our final home. And so one of our great passions, uh, the temptations of our flesh, is to live as if we were not sojourners, to live as if we were not exiles, to live as if we, even though we want to be part of God's people, we also, we don't want to seem too strange, too distant, too separated from the people of this world. So we don't want to stand out too much. We often say things like, well, the, the world is watching And so we need to pay attention to what we're doing. But too often, uh, when people say the world is watching, what they really mean is that we're watching the world. And the world is driving the conversation of how we ought to live. So one of the great passions of our flesh is to not live like we actually are sojourners and exiles. But Peter tells us to fight that, to abstain from that, to avoid that temptation. Why? Because it wages war against our soul. That's not light language. The language of war is not something to take lightly. Peter's telling us that these temptations that we have been freed from, remember that Christ has freed us from the the feudal ways that we've inherited from our forefathers. We saw in chapter 1, verse 18, we don't have to live that way anymore. We've been freed from that, but that desire continues to wage war against our soul. We're in a spiritual battle. And that's why Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6 that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that we might be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. We have a spiritual enemy and we're in a spiritual battle. And so we must put on spiritual armor because the passions of our flesh flesh, and the principalities of the air wage war against our soul. And so we're to avoid that. Verse 11, he tells us what to avoid, what not to do. But here in verse 12, Peter continues and tells us what we should do. Here's the things that we should do. We're to keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against us as evildoers, they may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Keep our conduct among the Gentiles, the lost, the lost and dying world, those who have not received God's mercy, those who are not God's people. We're to keep our conduct among them honorable. We're to uh, keep our conversation excellent, as the King James Version reads. But this word for honorable really could also be translated good. We're to keep our conduct good. And the reason I point that out is because, uh, again, these verses 11 and 12 really serve the big idea for everywhere we're going in this section. And we're going to keep seeing over and over and over that we're to be busy doing good. As believers, as sojourners, as exiles, we're to be doing good. And that extends to all people in all circumstances. We're to be doing good. Uh, Peter is going to flesh this idea out. He's not going to leave us wondering what does it mean to do good. You see that later in the verse he says uh, we're to do good so that when they see our good deeds uh, that they will glorify God on the day of visitation. But as we go through the rest of the passage, I'm not going to point it all out to you, but I want you to, uh, to see as you go through this section of the letter later in chapter 2 and into chapter 3, over and over and over we see language about doing good, doing good. We're to do good deeds. When we do good, even when we're persecuted for that, it's better to be persecuted for doing good. We see this idea over and over and over. And I want to just zoom out for just a moment so that you can see that, see where we're going. So Peter's explaining, yes, as believers, we're to be doing good. Well, what does that mean? 
Well, he shifts the focus. Later on, he starts talking about being submissive, being subject. We're to submit to the authorities over us. We see that in the rest of our passage for this morning. We're going to see it next week and the week after that. It keeps going that he keeps saying, well, to do good, you need to submit to the right authorities. You need to submit in this way and you need to submit in that way. So doing good more specifically means that we should uh, submit and love and fear and honor. We see that here in, in verse 17 where we're going to get to before, before I'm done. So we, what does it mean to do good? Love, fear, submit, and honor. And then this word of honor, he keeps uh, fleshing that out. What does it mean to honor those in authority over us? Well, honor more specifically includes that slaves submit to masters and that wives submit to husbands and that husbands love and understand and honor their wives and that believers show compassion to one another. And so Peter keeps drilling down. He goes from, we need to do good to explain it further. Well, that means you need to uh, submit, love, honor, and fear the right things. And what does it mean to honor? Well, here's how it fleshes itself out. And as you see, uh, as I've just mentioned, and we're going to see as we go through the passage, uh, through the book, he really leaves no stone unturned. He keeps meddling in our lives. He tells us how we're supposed to uh, relate to our employers and how we're supposed to relate to the government and how we're supposed to relate in our marriages. And Peter puts all of this under the idea that we, we as believers are to be busy doing good. Why? Let's turn back to to verse 12. Why are we supposed to be doing this? So that when the lost, when the Gentiles see our good deeds, when they speak against us as evildoers, they'll see our good deeds and glorify God. Notice that Peter doesn't say if they speak against you as an evildoer. He says when they speak against you as an evildoer. The day will surely come and it's already here. We see it throughout church history and we see it in our own day that the lost speak of Christians as having a distorted uh, way of thinking. They take our teachings and they manipulate it. They twist it. They distort it. And they make us appear to be the evil ones. It's not hard to look on the news now and see Christian teaching perverted and being taught as if we are the ones who are evil. We are the ones who are doing wrong and that we're the ones that need to convert. We're the ones that need to get on board with the right way of thinking according to the world. And so Peter says, when this happens, when they speak against you as evildoers, we want them to see our good deeds. They want us to, we want them to see us doing good. And by that, they will glorify God. They will hear the truth of the gospel. And perhaps many of them would repent and trust Christ when they see the gospel working itself out in our own lives. And they would glorify God on the day of visitation when Christ returns. I want to read from, to you a portion of, of a letter that's almost as old as the letter of 1 Peter. It was written by a man named Pliny the Younger. Now, I know that name probably doesn't mean much to most of you, but he was a Roman governor living about 50 years after the time that the letter of 1 Peter was written. And when Pliny became a governor, he had to start dealing with Christians. And he didn't know how to deal with Christians. He had never dealt with Christians before. And so he sent a letter to his boss, a man named Trajan. Trajan was the emperor of Rome at that time. And so Pliny writes a letter to Trajan and he says, look, I'm dealing with these Christians. I don't know what to do. I need your advice. And so here's a portion of what Pliny says. He says, the matter seemed to me to warrant consulting you, especially because of the number of people involved. For many persons of every age, every rank, and also of both sexes are and will be endangered. Why are they going to be endangered? Because the contagion of this superstition, 
That's how he's speaking about Christianity. The contagion of this superstition has spread not only to the cities, but also to the villages and the farms. So Pliny is concerned as governor that their uh, false temples and their false idols are not being worshipped. The gospel is spreading. The gospel is going forth. And it's made its way not just from the city. It's reaching out into the towns, into the villages, and into the farms. And so people are seeing their good deeds. Even as evil is spoken of these Christians, the gospel is going forth. And lives are being changed. And they are, even as their uh, evil is being spoken against them, uh, people are seeing their good deeds good deeds in coming to Christ. But Pliny continues in his letter. You may ask, well, what are their good deeds that, that people are seeing? Pliny says, well, look, they assert that the sum and substance of their fault, their error, their big crime that these Christians are committing, well, it's that they're accustomed to gathering on a fixed day, the Lord's day, before dawn, and they sing responsively a hymn to Christ. They gather together and they sing songs to Christ not as just as if he were any other person, but they sing songs to Christ as if he were a God, Pliny says. And then they bind themselves together by a covenant, by an oath. Not a covenant or an oath to commit a crime, but in fact a covenant or an oath to avoid crime. And Pliny can't understand this. The governor can't understand it. He says, look, they're, they're covenanting together not to commit fraud, not to commit theft, not to commit adultery. Pliny writes to Trajan and he says, look, I don't understand these Christians. They don't take mistresses. They don't cheat on each other. They don't get divorced. They don't look like the rest of us. And emperor, I don't know what to do with these people. And he continues, he says, when it's over, it's their custom to depart and to assemble again to partake of food. They're taking the Lord's Supper. But Pliny makes sure to note, well, it's ordinary food. It's innocent food. Why does that matter? Because Christians in the early centuries were accused of being cannibals because they had this language of talking about eating the body and the blood of a dead man. What does that mean? They were accused of, of, of subverting the government because Nero accused them of burning uh, the city. They were accused of all sorts of terrible things. But even when the world spoke against these Christians as evildoers, the world saw their good deeds. They saw that when they investigated, this stuff really wasn't true. And people came to Christ. And this, uh, the contagion of their superstition, faith in Jesus Christ was spreading all throughout the countryside, even to the smallest villages and the farms. That's what Peter is encouraging Christians to do. This is why it matters when we do good things, when we do good deeds, even when the world speaks of us as being evil. We're not to get caught up in having our feelings hurt or being offended that the world speaks evil of us. We're to continue glorifying God by doing good deeds so that people will come to faith in Christ. They will glorify God on the day of visitation. All right, that's verses 11 and 12. All right, we're going to move a little faster through the rest of it. But I want you to see the big idea, 11 and 12, that because we're going to keep coming back to this. This is the big thesis that Peter is going to keep coming back to in our relationship with the government, the relationship we have with our, our masters, the relationships we have in the home, the relationships we have with one another. He's going to keep returning to this big idea. But now he says in verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. What is to be our relationship with the government, with the world around us? What does it look like for us to do good towards the government? Peter says, be subject, submit to them. Be subject, not for your own sake, not for your own political expediency, but be subject for the Lord's sake 
to every human institution is the way the ESV says, the way most of our translations say institution. Uh, But the word is often translated in the New Testament as creation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human creation. Now, why do I point that out to you? Because Peter is trying to let them know in a day when the emperor was often worshipped as God, Peter is reminding them he's only human. Yes, there are human authorities, and we need to live our lives in a way to submit to them as much as possible, but they're human. They don't have our ultimate allegiance, our ultimate authority. More on that in a moment. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution or creation, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, someone like Trajan being supreme over all the land, or whether it be to governors as sent by him, people like Pliny that Trajan sent forth and said, you're governor of this area. Be subject, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him. What is the purpose that Peter says for government? To punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Now, Peter's not giving us a long treatise on government. Uh, That's something that we have to study all the scriptures to better understand our relationship with the government. And it's always been a controversial question of how should Christians relate to the government over them. We see that in Jesus's conversations in the Gospels. It was a point of contention. We see it in the book of Acts with the early church and how they related to the government. We see instructions in these letters of the New Testament teaching Christians how to interact with the government. We can't get into all of that right now. Peter gives us a purpose here. He says the purpose of government is to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. The idea of punishing those who do evil, that's consistent throughout most of the descriptions of government In the Bible, God has given government that responsibility to punish those who do evil. And we have many examples in the Bible of when government failed to punish those who do evil. But that's part of their responsibility, but also to praise those who do good. That may not make a lot of sense to us today. We don't see this part practiced very often. But in Peter's day, it was very common for hometown heroes, those who have done good in the community, to be honored by the government, to be honored by the community. Statues would be built of those hometown heroes, those who had done, done good for the community around them. Peter says this is the purpose of government, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. But then he makes it even harder. He doesn't give us wiggle room because in verse 15 he says, For this is the will of God. What is the will of God? That by doing good, we should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. You know, Christians far too often spend way too much time trying to figure out the will of God, which is a good thing to do, but we spend too much time looking in all the wrong places. We're listening to to people who aren't teaching the Bible. We're listening to all sorts of things. Maybe we're sitting there just emptying our mind, waiting until we get perhaps a divine signal from heaven, the the right ooey-gooey feeling on the inside. And we think, if if everything lines up just right, then I will know the will of God. Did you know that there are places in the Bible where it specifically says, this is the will of God? Here's one of those places right here. This is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence The ignorance of foolish people. Now, think about this. Think about Peter's argument. He's saying, look, the world doesn't understand Christians. And they're going to say all sorts of evil things about Christians. So what good is it going to do for a Christian to argue with the government all the time? To be subversive to the government? To seek to overthrow the government? Because that's what they were saying that Christians were doing. They keep talking about somebody else being Lord. They keep talking about somebody else being king. This man named Jesus... 
So what good does it do for Christians to go around giving credence to this argument that Christians are evildoers? He says, no, by doing good, by seeking to submit and obey as much as possible within limits, as we'll get to in a moment, we will put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. He keeps going through this idea. Why should servants, Christian servants, Christian slaves be submissive to their masters? To put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Well, what's going to happen when a a Christian wife submits to an ungodly husband, a man who who doesn't know God, but yet she's seeking to honor God in her marriage? In chapter 3, as we'll get there, Peter says, well, that by doing that, by doing good, she will put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Well, what about a, a godly husband not treating his wife the way the world treats women, but treating his wife with honor and with dignity, someone who is a joint heir of the grace of God with him. What happens when a godly husband does that? Well, it puts to silence the ignorance of foolish people. What about uh, as he gets to the relationship with, with one another, as we'll see later in chapter 3, what about when Christians, people who claim the name of Christ, sin against one another? Should they sin in return? Should they revile in return for someone reviling them? No, we shouldn't do that. We should love one another earnestly. And when we do that, we put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Peter is working this out in a way that only God could design this. It only makes sense in God's plan. It doesn't make sense according to the world standards. We think we need to to get even. But God says, no, we need to do good to those who have done us wrong in order that the gospel will go forth. In order that they will see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What about verse 16? What about the objections that we have to this? We're Americans. We just celebrated our Independence Day. We don't like anybody telling us what to do, certainly not the government. And for those of you who uh, perhaps are from Texas, as you remember, we spent six years in Texas. There's a whole special breed of people out there who really don't like the government telling them what to do. So what are we supposed to do with this? Well, Peter reminds us in verse 16, we're to live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Live as people who are free, no matter what our lot in life is. We know that our ultimate freedom is in Jesus Christ. That's what we emphasized even as we gathered on Independence Day. We're thankful for the freedom we have in this nation, but ultimately our freedom is in Jesus Christ. So we can live as people who are free. Does that mean that uh, the next time I get pulled over for speeding, which praise the Lord hasn't happened in a very long time, but does that mean that the next time that happens, should I say, well, you know, officer, I'm, I'm a Christian. I recognize that God is supreme, and so I'm going to live as someone who is free, and I'm not going to submit to your uh, speed limits. I think they're foolish, and I'm just not going to, to do that. You think that's going to get me out of a ticket? Do you think that's going to help me share the gospel with this police officer? No. What about some of you men and women who've served in our armed forces? Think back to your time in active duty. Think about the commanding officer giving you an order, and you didn't think it was very right. You knew better than that commanding officer and you knew that he was just saying something foolish and it wouldn't work and it was a waste of time. Did you tell him, you know, sir, I'm, I'm a Christian. I am free in Christ. And so therefore, I really don't have to submit to your authority. And I'm just going to ignore this because I think it's foolish. How would that work out for you? Not very well at all. Some of you would still be on KP right now if you'd said that to your commanding officer. We understand that we have authorities in our life in different realms and different spheres. 
And we're to submit to those authorities as much as possible. And there are times that Peter himself did not obey this. Peter tells us we're to submit for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And then he tells us specifically he's talking about the emperor as supreme. But we know in the book of Acts that there were times that Peter did not obey his own counsel to us. Because people came to him, the city rulers came to him and said, you must stop preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Peter said, look, boys, you do what you think you ought to do. You do what you think is best. But I can't stop speaking about the things that I've seen and the things that I've heard. I can't stop preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. There will come a day. There are already instances we see in our country when we have to say we must obey God rather than men. But we're fallen people. We're sinful people saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. But our temptation, one of the uh, passions of our flesh is to relativize everything. We want to just take every situation and say, well, you know, I think I've got an exception for this rule. And I think I've got an exception for that rule. And, you know, I think I've got an exception for this one over here. And before you know it, we have found exceptions to every single rule that God has given us. And so, yes, there are exceptions. There is a limit to the government's authority in our lives. But as much as possible, Peter's telling us, don't look for the exception. Do your best to do good, even to those who've done you wrong. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants, living as slaves of God. You see, when we come to Christ, we recognize that we are a slave to sin, that we can't help but obey the master of sin. But when we come to Christ, Christ frees us. He sets us uh, free indeed that we no longer have to be uh, beholden to the master of sin. And now we become slaves of Christ. Christ doesn't save us so that we can just go be free, autonomous individuals that we don't have to answer to anyone. No, we go from answering to sin to answering Jesus. And when we become slaves of Christ, then we can live as free people. Christ truly sets us free and gives us the freedom, the ability to do these things that we can live as people who are free. And then he summarizes. Remember, he he goes from telling us what it means to do good. He narrows down. Well, that means you need to submit to the right authorities in the right places in the right times. And then he he drills down even more in verse 17. And he gives us four crisp commands. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Honor everyone. You know what the Greek word for everyone means? Everyone. There's no exception. There's no way of getting out of it. Everyone means everyone. Even the people you don't like. Even the people that are hard to love. Even the people that just grate on your ever-loving nerve and you can't figure out how to honor them. God tells us we're to honor everyone. That doesn't mean that they're right about everything. It means we treat people as made in the image of God. Every person we run into, no matter how caught up in their sin, no matter how wrong they may be, they are made in the image of God. And we're to treat them that way. We're to honor everyone. And you know, that sounds a lot like our third priority as a church and as individuals as we talk about that. We see these three priorities right here in the text. Honor everyone. That speaks to our relationship with the world. What's the second command? Love the brotherhood. That speaks to our second priority, our relationship with one another, with the church. We're to honor everyone, but love the brotherhood. We're to have that special relationship with those who are in Christ, those who are God's people. 
We're to be kind and honorable to all people, but we're to, to go even further, go the extra mile for those who are part of the brotherhood. We're to love all those who are in Christ. Thirdly, and our first priority, is to fear God. To fear God. Now, does this mean we walk around in terror all of the time that God is about to zap us if we do the wrong thing? That we think of God as being a genie and if, if we ask him the right things, he'll give us the right things? No, that's not the type of fear that the text is talking about. I think it helps us to, to compare what comes next. We're to fear God, but honor the emperor. You see, Peter lived in a day, and most Christians will ultimately find a time when they are tempted, they are tested to fear the emperor, to fear those who have ultimate earthly power. But Peter says, oh no, we're to fear God. He's the one who can take our soul. He's the one who has all authority. We fear him, our ultimate loyalty, our ultimate allegiance, our ultimate uh, authority is God above. So we fear God, but we honor the emperor. Notice the same command that Peter tells us for everyone else in the world. We're to honor everyone. And oh yeah, that everyone includes the emperor. That everyone includes the one that we most often don't want to honor. And perhaps you're, you're tempted to think, well, look, what, what does Peter know? I mean, he lived 2,000 years ago. A lot of things have changed since then. Peter didn't have it as bad as we do today. Are you kidding me? Do you know who was emperor when Peter wrote this letter? It was a man named Nero. Nero hated Christians. He hated pretty much everybody but himself, and he did what he wanted to do. And he burned a part of his own city, and he needed a scapegoat, and he blamed it on the Christians. And so a great persecution arose against the Christians that drove the Christians out. But those Christians that Nero did capture, he captured them and he used them as human torches, lighting their bodies on fire at night to light his gardens. That's the emperor that Peter's talking about. That's what Peter had to deal with in his lifetime. And what does he say? Honor the emperor, but fear God. I return to this same letter from Pliny as he's writing to Trajan. He had to figure out because there were people just like today. There were people who were uh, snitches. There were people who were informants, people who would say, you know, so-and-so over there, they're a Christian. And so-and-so over there, they're a Christian. And so Pliny, even in his understanding of justice, knew he couldn't just take somebody's word for it. He really had to question them. He had to figure out who are the Christians and who are not the Christians. And so Pliny, in writing to Trajan, he says, look, uh, these people that deny that they are Christians, well, I made them invoke the gods, little g, plural. I made them invoke the gods in words dictated by me. And they offered prayer with incense and wine to your image, Pliny, which I had ordered to be brought for this purpose together with statues of the God. And moreover, these people cursed Christ. Now notice what Pliny says. He says, that's something that people who really are Christians, they can't do that. At least so I'm told. So even Pliny understood that true Christians could not do this. They could not curse Christ. And he said others who had been named by the informer declared that they had been Christians in the past, but they no longer were. Some of them three years ago, some of them 25 years ago. They said they used to be Christians, but they no longer were Christians. And just to make sure, they worshipped your image, Trajan. And they worshipped the statues of the gods. And they cursed Christ. That's the people who weren't part of God's people. But what did those Christians do? Pliny said, well, I interrogated these as to whether or not they were Christians. Those who confessed, I interrogated a second time and a third time threatening them with punishment 
But how did they respond to that? Those who persisted, I ordered executed. For I had no doubt that whatever the nature of their creed, whatever they believed, I knew that their stubbornness and their inflexible obstinacy surely deserved to be punished. Pliny says, look, I don't understand these Christians. I don't know what to do with them, but I know that anybody that is that stubborn in their belief deserves to die. Perhaps our world isn't as different as Peter's world as we thought. I mentioned that Pliny the Younger was a governor, a Roman governor in that day, about 50 years after the writing of this letter. He served in Bithynia and Pontus, two of the places that we find at the beginning of this letter, this letter being addressed to Christians in Bithynia and Pontus and other places. So we can understand that when Peter sent this letter, there were Christians who heard and believed and they obeyed. Fifty years later, Pliny the Younger was still having to deal with Christians in this region. So the question is not whether or not they obeyed. The question is, will we? Will we do good to those who have done us wrong? I pray that it would be so. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.